0: Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome back to the Primate Cast. The release date for today's podcast is Saturday, March the 19th, 2016. So, this is the 39th installment of the Primate Cast, in which we sat down in the studio with Professor Colin Chapman. Now, for anyone who spent even a tiny amount of time studying primatology, you should know that name immediately. He's a tireless producer of scientific content regarding primates, and of course, is a major player in their conservation. Colin Chapman is Canada Research Chair in Primate Ecology and Conservation, and he's also a professor at McGill University's Department of Anthropology and the McGill School of the Environment, along with numerous other um, titles and accolades that go along with his name. He's a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. He's a Killam Research Fellow. He was an Associate Scientist with WCS, and he's on the, on the Committee of Natural Geographic and he's also an honorary lecturer at Makerere University in Uganda, where he's been working for the past 26 years. And we get into that quite extensively in the uh, interview to come. So Dr. Chapman was here in Japan at uh, Kyoto University's Primate Research Institute, visiting some collaborators and uh, working on some joint projects. And we had a chance to sit down with him following a lecture he gave uh, to the Institute. So it was great having a chance to chat with Colin. Our our research interests have intersected a lot over the last few years. So it was really nice to have him here for uh, for the week and have a chance to speak with him and have him speak with our students as well as somebody who can really um, put some perspective into a lot of the things they're doing as well. And so let's just get right on with that interview. Maybe the first thing that I always wanted to ask your, maybe a lot of people are also
1: thinking is how
0: do you manage doing everything that you're doing? <laughs>
1: Uh, that's a good question. Um, I actually don't know. I actually, my kind of philosophy is just to do what's fun. And so, if another fun thing comes up, I tend to do it. Sometimes I regret doing it because I take on too much, but I just do what's <laughs> fun and what kind of comes up one at a time.
0: Uh-huh. So, I, and certainly from reading uh, all the extensive things you've done, I mean, it looks like there's a lot of fun science going on. And it was just fun having you talk with some of our students and and uh, mention some of the necessarily, not necessarily published things, but. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I always yeah, to say that. Yeah, keep yourself interested in it. But so, Recently, you've been um, kind of talking a lot about the the history of Kibale, okay, your Mm -hmm. involvement in Kibale. So you gave a talk here at PRI yesterday, which was twenty six years of um, of studies in Kibale, and then you also mentioned that actually the field site got started in nineteen seventy. So how can you just tell us a bit about how you got started in 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 Kibale and? what that's meant to you.
1: Yeah, people always expect me to have a nice kind of plan that says, I, I planned to go there because I was gonna test this theory and I had it all lined up. But the reality was, uh, I think I wrote uh, six different postdocs and the one to go to Kibale came through. So I went to Kibale, um, and that's kind of how I got there. Mm-hmm. Why well, I'm doing the long-term research is just because there's so few sites that really have a long-term scope. Mm-hmm. And when I started off, I didn't really intend to collect long-term data, uh, but I kept things going. So I have this data that now is 26 years and vegetation plots I set up way back then. And I can just start looking at change. And I can use Tom Stusaker's data to go back to 1970, as you said. And so many questions we're looking at today are things like climate change. And you can't look at climate change for most questions within like a year or two of a PhD program. Mm -hmm. So I now have all this data. I didn't plan plan it that way, but I have this data so I can ask Yeah, really kind of interesting questions that use kind of all this historical approach.
0: Mm -hmm. And I mean, how much would you say that you're you're kind of on the research side, you're kind of focused at Kibale? I mean, when you first went there, you mentioned that you were there to study the chimpanzees. Mm -hmm. And so when you set up those forest plots that you talked about, you were really focused on the chimpanzees. But then since then, it's kind of changed quite a bit.
1: Yeah, I basically I, I kind of just, you know, um, started asking questions, different questions over time. So after I finished the chimpanzees, the, the primates were just so kind of, the monkeys were so kind of easily observable. So I, I thought, you know, I now have a faculty position, so I can't get there so many months of the year. I used to be able to get there four, now I can get there you know two, two, three. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you go study chimps and it's low food availability, you can go there for two months and they're not really there that much. So I switched over to studying the monkeys. Um, And then as kind of things go with me, as I switched over to looking at other sorts of questions, because I thought like, why are the plants fruiting at this time? So I did phenology work and I've been interested for the last couple of years on elephants because elephant numbers are really increasing in the park. So I'm really starting a kind of a big push on looking at elephants and what they're doing to the forest, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm.
0: So can you just talk about your, your kind of, I guess if you think of a central theme of your work, it's... Um, maybe primate abundance is one of the main things, or mammalian abundance, but also the the, the plant ecology. Yeah, so you've you've brought a lot of that into the study.
1: So I kind of think of it as I really kind of study, um, kind of how the environment affects the animals. So typically primates, and how the animals then affect the environment. So for the primates being affected, I'm really looking at I'm really interested in ecological determinants of populations. And also of group size, which mm. is kind of part of the population. So what determines the size of groups animals are in, and what limits their kind of upper population size. And that, of course, has lots of conservation implications, which is kind of, I think, is important. Mm. On the plant side, I was really looking at how animals kind of feed back and influence the forest by being seed dispersers, or now with the colobus, by kind of eating plants uh, a lot, and kind of changing the abundance of plant species because they eat them, basically leaves so much or eat the flowers. Mm-hmm. So, in I, I
0: guess it's in your research, it's pretty clear how the the research aspect of of everything you're doing is is very well fit towards the the conservation aspect as well. And we often don't see that necessarily in studies. Yet everybody wants to kind of push conservation. Mm-hmm. So, was that something that you consciously from the beginning were were trying to do with your work, or did you just? Did it kind of fall into that way as well, like, like other things? It kind right of
1: now? grew slowly, but surely. Mm-hmm. You know, the field of conservation biology is relatively new. So students that are thinking of it today will think, no, no, it's been around forever. But really in the kind of eighties and even start of the 90s, it was just kind of starting off. So um, I really got interested in it when I was uh, doing my PhD work in Costa Rica. And another researcher was actually helping set up a park. Mm -hmm. So this is Dan Jansen, he was setting up uh, Guanacaste National Park. And I really wanted to kind of contribute. I wanted to kind of do something that made made a difference. So I started doing that more and more. And then I kind of found that a lot of questions can be looked at with two perspectives. So you can basically take a totally academic perspective and ask, what's the ecological determinants of private abundance? You know, and not talk all about conservation or even think about it. Or you can ask that same academic question and think about how it's applied. And you can often ask, basically meet the needs of two fields. So that's really what I try to do. To get funding, you have to ask academic questions very often. There's not really that much funding for kind of conservation studies. Mm-hmm. So you ask academic questions that have kind of applications, what I've been doing.
0: Mm-hmm. And very successfully. So that's <laughs> so another thing I was amazed is how, just in the first question is, how do you keep it going or how do you get everything done? But, but how do you keep Kibale going? So with all the range of activities you're doing there, I mean, it involves students, postdocs, yourself. It involves all of these extra conservation projects and public health projects. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, how does, that, how does that happen for you?
1: You really, I, I uh, <clears throat> write lots of grants. Um, and I don't get a lot of them. So you get used to getting turned down. I got turned down this morning, in fact. Oh, yeah, sure. uh, Yeah, no. Uh, it was a really big grant, but I didn't uh. get it. Um, but, you know, you just write lots of grants to all sorts of different places. You try to think of how your work would fit into different angles, really. Uh, so are people in conservation interested? So it can fit there. Academics interested? Or what I've looked for fairly recently is kind of health applications, so things like uh, disease in primates or uh, viruses in primates, and that has helped fund a lot of the work. And in many ways, if you kind of get over there and you're collecting data on disease, you can collect data on behavior as well. And it kind of lets you do kind of two things at mm-hmm. once. And if you're collecting those sorts of data, you can apply it as well. So if you get one grant to do one thing, you can kind of expand its application.
0: hmm so probably in the last 10 to 15 years or something, um, and you were right in the, from the beginning of it, the the interest in diseases and primates has really kind of skyrocketed, and, and yeah. it's become a conservation issue. It's mm-hmm. obviously a public health issue. Um, so again, was that how did you kind of fall into that, or is it easy, immediately recognizable that that needed to be done?
1: Um, basically, I kind of tend to go along in my research path. I'm asking one question, and I follow it until either I'm satisfied with the answer or until I realize that uh, getting into that field will take me in a direction I don't want to go. So before doing parasites, I did a lot of nutrition work. And then I realized I can study basic nutrition, why do animals select foods or you know, what's the most important food? Uh, how could those foods' availabilities influence their abundance? But then I realized that to get past looking at things like protein, fiber, carbohydrates, you'd have to start looking at secondary compounds. And secondary compounds would mean intensive lab work. And I don't really want my career to take that route. So then I basically said, what else is affecting primate abundance? And I thought disease. And so I just kind of kept on the stream of primate abundance, which has conservation implications, but just switched over to disease. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I did that uh, 10 years or so ago, maybe more. Mm -hmm. Um, But it just seemed like a natural progression, still looking at primate abundance.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's great to see now that <laughs> there are actually so many um, studies popping up. And, yeah, it's
1: really is nice.
0: And we're learning a lot about, yeah. about those issues as well. And um, so the talk that you, you gave here at the Primate Research Institute yesterday, and I assume you'll give a couple more times in Japan before you leave, was basically the, the 26 years of data in Kibale and the combination of your studies on uh, parasitism or disease, mm-hmm. nutrition and stress. So can you kind of give us a I don't know, the basic synopsis of that. and I mean, so you'd like to be summarized
1: 26 years in 30 seconds. <laughs> Sounds ridiculous. You can um, take more than 30 seconds. Okay. Can I summarize it? Um, basically, I've been looking at kind of really what determines particularly red colorless abundance. And in many ways, what I did is I went through different kind of stages. First off, I looked at how their abundance varied kind of over space and compared a little bit to Tom Strucsecker's data, so looked at it over time. So I found I had variation. And then kept going with Tom Streusager's transects so I could extend the time frame. And then I said, well, okay, what could be determining this variation? And I went to nutrition. So I looked at basically what was determining primate abundance. And I found monkeys, uh, the prudini monkeys, were determined a lot by just fruit abundance. So we studied red tails and again chimps. And they're really determined by the abundance of the food in the particular mm-hmm. habitat. And then I said, well, what influences colobines?" And, and they weren't determined by just their abundance, but it seemed like food quality, which took me to nutrition. Kind of followed nutrition through for a few years, and then switched over to looking at parasites um, and diseases. So we've now, with a, a collaboration of Tony Goldberg, looked at a lot of viruses, which is also kind of a very interesting field. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of one thing led to another.
0: So how did? In, the, in those 26 years or even longer, uh, going back to the 1970, I mean, from your perspective, and h- how much has the forest structure there changed in that's the a, national
1: park and also outside? Yeah, it's a really interesting question in many ways. Um, let's start outside. Outside of Kibali, um was really quite modified by humans a long time ago. So I have records back to the 1920s from the game department, And then they were talking about, you know, basically herds of elephants going through the main town. And they called it, you know, these elephants will have, what do they say? It was a great line, something like, "Um, this region of Uganda will not develop until uh, they stop being vexed by herds of elephants. Okay. (laughs) So um, back then it was different. But all the land had already been converted by the 1950s. And there were just pockets left. So most of it was like that by Mm -hmm. the 1950s. And things have just got a little bit... The pockets have got a little bit smaller since mm-hmm. then. Inside the park, we really thought about it as being very kind of pristine habitat. There was areas where the trees are you know, two meters in diameter. They're really huge trees. And you'd think, well, those really huge trees have to be thousand years old or really, really old. And so we thought of it as being pristine. And then slowly but surely over time, we kind of collected data or kind of got... Uh, people's statements from some of the old men in the area that kind of suggested that it wasn't so old and had been influenced by people for a long time. So we started changing our perspective. And with that, we started realizing the forest is really quite dynamic. Over the time I've been there, it's changed fairly substantially. Mm-hmm. And you need 26 years of data to start kind of appreciating that. Mm-hmm. If you do a two, three year project, it's, you're not going to really appreciate the fact that things are changing because mm-hmm. in that time scale, they don't.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and when was the park established? Was it before you got there, or it was uh, established before I got there? Mm-hmm. It was basically it was a forest reserve mm-hmm. uh, back to um, nineteen in nineteen sixties, I think, or even before that. Um, and then it became a national park in nineteen ninety three. Okay. So we kind of helped it make that transition. Yeah, uh, and it's been a national park kind of ever since.
0: Yeah, and so you've you've taken a lot of students from so Ugandan students, um, I guess, partly in relation to your honorary lectureship at Makerere, but. It, but just in general who've come to canada and, mm-hmm. and done their degrees with you and, and researched in uh, in kimale and and now i assume have started to make a difference
1: themselves yeah uh, in many ways i think you know some of the well i think my most important contribution has been through training mm-hmm. so in particular well both north american and ugandan students but ugandan students you know, not that many people in the country had phds and phds are I also kind of like thinking of them as tickets. They kind of provide you, uh, you can start now, and it really provides you an opportunity to, to choose different sorts of advanced fields, positions in government, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So some of my students have gone to really, you know, prominent positions like the head of the national parks, uh, those sorts of positions, and they've done really important things. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, kind of, I'm really proud of my students. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's, a, I mean, one really direct way of, of influencing things. I mean, yeah. education is...
1: Yeah. And I kind of think of it, you know, there's only so much I can do. Yeah. So I'm going to do a little bit. But if I, you know, take and convince kind of 10 other people to have a, a life kind of devoted to conservation and research, that's basically increasing exponentially. Because if they have 10 students each, yeah. it just kind of grows quite rapidly. Yeah, And, you know, we don't see it over the lifetime of individual researchers. And I don't think we see much conservation gains typically over... We don't see it over a project. Mm-hmm. You know, three, five years, you don't see anything. Mm-hmm. Ten years, maybe a little bit, but it's really over your lifetime. You start seeing gains. So a lot of the conservation projects do evaluations at the end of the three years. And I think they're that's probably, oh, I shouldn't probably say this, but I think it's almost meaningless mm-hmm. because in three years, most of those projects are not going to have an impact. It's mm-hmm. going to be much longer.
0: Yeah. So another huge project that you, you were able to set up there and, I would almost assume that might have almost immediate benefits is the, the, the mobile health unit and your, your public health efforts there yeah. in Kibale and around the park.
1: Can you talk a bit about those? Sure. Um, it kind of started with the fact that I felt kind of uh, so privileged to be in Uganda doing this work. And I really appreciated what all the, the field assistants were giving me and how the community kind of accepted me in. took a few years, which is, I think, natural. But after a while, I was really appreciating what they're giving me. Mm-hmm. So I thought uh, I should give something back. And I was basically walking back one day with a field assistant kind of late in the day. And we were walking back from watching monkeys somewhere and kind of just said, well, what do the field people, what do people in the village need? Um, And he's a very talkative field assistant. He said, we need money. And I said, (laughs) well, I can't pay people money. I can't pay, you too many people out there. And he said, how about jobs? And I say, well, I can't give that many jobs. And then he kind of came up and said, well, the other thing we really need, and he kind of described health insurance. Mm -hmm. He said he needs a way to pay for his children when they get sick. Because what he said they do is your child gets sick and you go, oh, sorry, he's sick, but he's going to get better tomorrow. And they wait a day and they say, it's going to get better the next day. And then the child doesn't get better. And he runs around and kind of begs money from everybody, all his neighbors, and gets enough money to take the child to the hospital or the clinic. And that costs, you know, quite a bit of money because they pay for the nurses or the doctor's yeah. kind of visitation fee. Yeah. And so I thought, well, maybe we can do something to help that. And so what we did, and, you know, I really uh, credit students for helping with this. We kind of came up with the idea, but they came up with the money. We built a health center, so a physical building. Uh, we did that through donations made by uh, parents, people from all over the place. We had benefits dinners, and all the students be organizing those benefit dinners to convince their parents to come and they had to pay extra money. So we uh, raised the money to build this clinic. Mm. And once we built the clinic, we put a nurse in it. And we had a, a policy where people didn't pay for visitation to see the nurse. That was covered by donations raised in Canada. But they did pay for the medicines they got. But they didn't have to pay right away. So if you come with a sick child, we'll basically give you treatment. You have to pay for that, the drugs you get treated with, but you don't have to pay for the nurse, which is usually the biggest part of it. Mm-hmm. It's like 80% of a visitation. Mm-hmm. So you only have to pay it. It's you know, we're giving you 80% off to start with. But if you don't have the money right away, we can say, okay, pay us back end of the month when you get paid. And that has worked amazingly well. You know, I kind of was worried that we wouldn't get paid, but mm-hmm. you know, I think we've had like a couple of people that haven't paid us back. Wow. Because we just put out the word, you know, is so-and-so not doing so well because he didn't pay us back? And mm-hmm. the next day, <laughs> that person gets and pays <laughs> us back.
0: Use the community structure. Exactly. Guilt. Guilt,
1: yeah. And then we expanded that. We realized that you know, the, the, the physical building could only kind of provide things to the people who were coming bike riding distance. So that's about 6,000 people. We thought, you know, could we expand it some way? And we wrote a grant and we basically got an ambulance. We bought an ambulance in Canada and shipped it over to Uganda, and that travels around the park now on a I set s- schedule. I saw on your website there's a, a photo of the ship. Yes, <laughs> and all the crates. Yeah, and one of those crates is, is our, our, our yeah, ambulance. Ambulance. So wow, away.
0: great. Okay, so is, has it been um, fairly, or when was that launched? Actually, before I ask my next question,
1: about three years ago three now. Years ago. Yeah, the mobile clinic. The, the mobile clinic. Actual clinic is probably almost ten years old. Ten years old. Wow, and still going strong. I see. Yep. Yeah. Okay, that's very cool. And if you want to ask kind of how it was doing, which I think was you're kind of hinting at for a question. um, I would kind of say it's too early to know Mm -hmm. because, you know, a lot of the people who come to the clinic, uh, they come and they get services with a mobile clinic and they get kind of little talks about conservation or hygiene or how you prevent diseases, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I think that people really appreciate the immediate things, but yeah. the children are taking home the big um, kind of message about right. conservation, about how to you know, kind of improve their health. So that'll be when we really see the advantage, which will be in a few years' time still. Um, but we are seeing a lot of people using it. Yeah. Um, and so the idea we're following is that yeah, you know, okay, the park is now giving you good things. So we we make sure that uh, the service is connected to coming from the park. It's not connected to myself at all yeah it's coming from the park um so if it's coming from the park the park's doing nice things for for the community well the community shouldn't do bad things to the park mm-hmm. whether or not that will work i don't know uh so we're going to be testing that really kind of we're starting a project now to really kind of test that right so we'll we'll see okay even if it doesn't work for conservation we did something good for the community
0: absolutely i mean really important it's nice to see uh ways that i mean it's not always so clear as a researcher and and uh you know having your activities at, at some place uh, abroad yeah it's hard to f- to feel how you make an influence yeah. and then whether it's actually appreciated and, and i really should
1: emphasize you say how do you make an influence abroad you know one of the big things we did is we hired good ugandans to help with these projects and these projects just wouldn't have worked if uh, they weren't there yeah absolutely
0: very cool um and just before we get into to the next thing, for anybody who's listening and is interested, you can find out more about this and also how you can contribute um, to the project through Colin's website. And we'll put links on the, on the, on the podcast Great. page. So just, you mentioned a bit earlier about how um, the, some of the aspects of the forest structure changing uh, over your history at Kibale, uh, but you're also involved now in, in projects looking at um, restoration mm-hmm. of forests and regeneration. Um, And then that'll tie in a little bit to elephants, which I want to ask about in a second. Okay, (laughs) but can you talk a little bit about, I mean, what kind of projects are happening now with restoration of the forest and
1: and how that's going? Sure. I started restoration work probably almost 15 years ago, and that started with one of my Ugandan PhD students. And at that time, I was thinking that restoration will be kind of a conservation wave in the future, because if you kind of look at North America. North America, um, not as much Canada, but particularly the United States, they cut down a lot of their forests and they use it for economic gain to move themselves up to kind of the next economic step in the ladder. And then after time, those forests regenerated. And I think that process is going to happen in the tropics. So you need to know how to regenerate those forests. In addition, with kind of climate change um, legislation coming in, there's a huge um, push to replant forests, To gain the carbon that's in the trees you replant. So, we started looking at uh, restore station, kind of different methods to restore things. Simple things like, you know, if you plant a seedling, you know, should you uh, weed around it to make sure competitors aren't there? And, you know, it seems logical that you would, but so we weeded around them. We wanted to show that there's going to be increased growth if you weed around them. And what we found was there is increased growth if the seedling survives. But in the height of the dry season, they are more exposed to dry conditions because they're you weeded around it, so a lot more seedlings died. Mm. So we found the opposite to what we would have recommended. So that was a good study because we yes. <laughs> we showed we were okay. wrong. A, a kind of a <laughs> common belief might not hold true. Yeah, and we've done lots of studies like that now. And yeah. it's uh, there's an area that's 40 square kilometers that's now being reforested in Kibale as part of a carbon offset project. Right. Okay.
0: And, and you've, I mean, you've also just generally showed that at least for uh, many of the primate populations, there there's a lot of stability. Even so, despite mm-hmm. the rapid or the the pretty extensive changes in the forest structure. Um, so, I mean, do you have any? I know that you mentioned the talk. You can't necessarily explain why yes, no, <laughs> these matters are observed. <laughs> but are you pretty optimistic? I mean, about the area right now, or what's your kind of feeling you know, about it? I'm actually
1: very optimistic. Um, what we have shown is in the main forest, populations for most species are pretty stable. Uh, they're doing really well. But for Kibali, what's really positive is all these areas that were regenerating. So, you know, uh, quite a huge, huge area in the south, about 100 square kilometers. And then areas in the north that used to be pine plantations that were cleared and allowed to regenerate to natural forest. They're also coming back to forest. And very, very quickly, the animals come in. Mm-hmm. And almost all the species come in and get into really pretty big numbers, kind mm-hmm. of numbers comparable to the old growth forest. Mm-hmm. So that means that uh, the populations in Kibale as a whole are increasing because more forest is becoming available. Mm-hmm. So that's really positive. Mm-hmm. You know, there is problems with, with poaching, uh, particularly now we're worried about elephant poaching increasing. It's been pretty low until now. Uh, so there is things there are challenges in a way the Ugandan uh, Wildlife Authority has to improve, but I think they're doing a really good job and things are moving in the right direction and they're trying for training and they're they're trying fairly hard so i'm really positive for kibale in the future okay cool i think it's a good segue too into what maybe started as
0: kind of a side interest and now is blossoming into something a little more (laughs) with the elephants so can you can you tell us a bit of what's going on with the elephants there in kibale sounds like an interesting story
1: sure Um, it's another one of my projects that was not planned out at all Uh, basically when we started doing uh, primate senses we basically we're trying to record, you know, whatever you can while you walk a trail. So you walk a four-kilometer trail and you might see two, three primate groups. But you spent a long time, you know, four or five hours walking that trail. So we thought we might as well record other information. So we started recording elephant tracks cutting across the trail. Um, and we did that twice and you know, we didn't have very many. And the third time we kind of did it, we had quite a bit few, quite a bit few more. That kind of puzzled us. The fourth time we got even more. We've now finished the fifth time, and we have kind of a really, well, we have an exponential rise. And so I'm really interested in what the elephants are doing to the forest. Uh, Mm -hmm. Elephants are uh, very destructive foragers, and they basically knock over trees, eat the bark. If they eat all the bark around the tree, they kill the tree. And they can kill a tree that's two meters wide uh, by eating the bark around it. So I'm really now interested in what the elephant numbers are going to be doing. Uh, to the forest as their numbers have increased so dramatically. I should be really careful in saying that in general elephant numbers have been decimated in Africa and their populations have have declined dramatically. I think something like 60% or something, I'd have to check that number, but they've been declining dramatically because of uh, ivory poaching.
0: Yeah, so you mentioned just now that their poaching was not such a huge concern for elephants around Kibale, but now with the exponential
1: increase in populations that becomes a concern. Well, it kind of becomes a concern for two reasons, uh, or it's it's more of a concern now. Uh, One, there are uh, poachers coming in because the ivory price went up, and those are outside people. Um, And those are hard to to control and regulate. You have to really have law enforcement to stop it. One really positive thing that I'm kind of really kind of proud about, I had nothing to do with it, uh, but um, poachers came in and they shot uh, two elephants and harvested the ivory. And then they went back into the village because they'd shot them at night. And they're staying in the village. And the villagers actually, some of the villagers, went and reported them to wow. the wildlife authority. And you know, these are your guys who are carrying uh, significant guns. Yes. And so by reporting them, they were putting themselves at a risk. Yeah. But they reported them and they caught the people and took the ivory away. So I thought that was really good. But the other way that uh, elephants are a problem is that elephants don't always abide by staying in the park. Right. And they basically leave the park to raid crops. You know, if you put a great crop, a great food just outside of the park boundary, they're going to go out and, and forage on it. Right. But farmer's fields are not that big. So if you have three or four elephants tromping through your field, they can really devastate your, your yours work or your season's work. Mm-hmm. And so that's uh, really, is not good for parks-people relationships. The, par- the animals, the, the community says, why don't you look after your animals? So that's something we have to deal with. Yeah. And again, well, if authority is trying, it's a very hard problem. And if the numbers keep going up, it'll become harder. Yeah.
0: So I guess if we can just wrap up a little bit, um, the two things I, I, wanna, I wanted to ask is just kind of what's kind of your really primary focus right now? And and, and how is that going to transition into what you're doing over the next five to ten years?
1: Um, the easy question right there. Right, exactly. <laughs> I can give you an easy answer. Uh, I don't really know. Okay. You know, things just kind of change from year to year. Um, what I'm going to work on next year, I can tell you, I want to keep working on the long-term data mm-hmm. because I think that provides novel insights, and I have lots of questions I can do with existing data. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to keep collecting data that builds, up, builds that long-term data and increases the timescale. So in a couple of years' time, I'll redo the census yet again and say how populations have changed. And so I'll keep that going. I'm going to do a small project on group size and how group size influences stress. And then I'm going to work on elephants because uh, elephants are could be a dramatic um, factor shaping the environment. And of course, that shapes the primates. Okay.
0: And then as an extension of that, just uh, from someone with as much experience and I'll just embarrass you and say prestige in the field. How do you, um, what's your approach to kind of, you know, passing on some of that to students? And, you know, what kind of messages are you you typically giving your students? And just in a broader sense, I mean, students for, I mean, certainly it sounds like you've been able to take advantage of the opportunities that have popped up, so that would be an obvious one, but also,
1: yeah. I guess, you know, in many ways, I think, um, you know, I never really kind of thought of what I was going to do right and how to direct my career to do kind of the pro, the right thing, mm-hmm. and I don't think I would if I went back. And you know, I think the thing to do is uh, do what's fun, enjoy your kind of career, and if you do that, you'll have fun and uh, do good things. I think so. That's kind of the baseline is you know really just try to do what drives you. What's your what's your passion? Mm-hmm. And don't be afraid of. You know, you know, kind of situations where you, people say, what's your prediction? And you go, well, I didn't have one. Because, you know, a lot of times you don't. Uh, so don't let science constrain what you're learning. So just you know, learn new things and have fun at it. I think that's
0: a, that's a good philosophy that comes out of Kyoto University, too. A lot of the professors feel like you, you know, if you haven't been out to see what you're, what you're going to observe, you, you won't know your question until yeah, you get there. Yeah, I really so. believe that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and just in, in getting back to the really young students, so you, you've also been involved in... Um, with National Geographic and obviously a really great um, organization that yep, offers a lot of opportunity mm-hmm. for uh, for scientists and conservationists and, and explorers. So can you talk just a little bit about um, some of the, the opportunities that, that especially the young um, researchers and students and conservationists might have with them?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, as you said, National Geographic is a really great kind of group to work with. They're really kind of a group of uh, some academics involved and a group of kind of uh, practitioners they really want to just kind of push interesting things forward so they're really a great group if you have novel ideas they're really thrilled with it um, kind of some of the opportunities are there's kind of one thing that particularly the young um, listeners should think about there's a grant called the young explorers grant and we have a fair pot of money now to Uh, contribute to that uh, to young explorers. So a young explorer is considered anyone younger than 25 at the time of submission of the Mm pre-proposal. And those grants are not big. They're $5,000. They're up to $5,000. They're meant to kind of start people off. So if you're starting a PhD, uh, it kind of gives you the seed money to get enough data to write another grant. Or in some cases, it might be enough data to do quite a bit of your project. So there are quite a few grants that we give out that are just to the young explorers. The grant is not that hard to write. Uh, Do get some advice on it and think about how to do it. And um, if anyone's listening and is going to write it on something that I know anything about, you know, I'm happy to answer questions and help people write them. Mm -hmm. The society encourages us to do that. We're not a government society. We're a, uh, a foundation, so we can give out money however we think is appropriate. And sometimes we'll take risks. I know one of the first meetings of that, Peter Raven, who chairs the committee, uh, basically we all kind of said, this project will never work, this project will never work. And he just kind of was sitting there listening to us. And then at the end, he said, what if it did? (laughs) And we all kind of turned around and kind of said, well, it's not going to. But then what if it did? And we kind of thought, wow, that would be really cool (laughs) if it worked. And so we funded the project. In a government type of organization, you'd never fund that. But yeah, we could. So that was really kind of fun. And people should, um, you know, anyone who has good science can apply. So it doesn't have to be a charismatic animal. It doesn't have to be chimpanzees. It could be, you know, nocturnal primate. It can be a variety of different things. It can be, you know, plants. It can be a huge variety. It can fund sometimes uh, quite a bit of lab work. So if your project involves both field and lab, that's uh, okay. It can fund up to half your lab work. Uh, so it's, it's quite flexible. So, you know, kind of look into it and kind of think about it. <laughs> we all need money.
0: Yes, absolutely. Cool. Um, so thank, yeah, thanks for that. And just wanted to wrap up on one last thing. I think I've heard, so you've been here about a week now, and I've heard you say in conversations, uh, about conversations, where somebody says, no, that'll never work, that'll never work. Oh, but what if it did? <laughs> <laughs> yes. A bunch of times, it could be grants, could be science. Yeah. So I think maybe that's a nice Nice message as well that we people it with. I if think it, it did. is, yeah, what if it did. I think, you know, think boldly and see what happens. So, College Chapman, thanks for joining us on The Primate Cast. Okay, it's been
1: a pleasure to talk to people. You. you have been listening to The Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology of the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.cicasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward slash news forward slash podcasts and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash The Primate Cast and on Twitter at The Primate Cast.